Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today we have a special episode in honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day. What I did here was invite my grandfather, grandmother, and great aunt, and I will be narrating here and there to keep the episode flowing. My name is Francisca. I am a singer, composer, music producer, podcasting coach, and your host. This is the Francisca Show, the No More Silence segment, a part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. And as always, listener discretion is advised. So our first guest today is Mr. Sol Goldschmidt, also referred to as Shlomi. He's my father's father. I call him Obapa. So his little snippet will be about five minutes long. And side note, his mother was the original Francie Goldschmidt, Francisca, that I am named for, and I proudly use her name. Fun fact, in my day-to-day, I go by Freddy. That's how my parents call me. That's also one of my names, and that was my great-grandmother's Jewish name. Actually, both of my great-grandmother's Jewish names. When we came closer to the war in the 30s, after the Hitler came to power, and started the anti-Semitic laws, she went... She being Francie Goldschmidt, my father's father's mother. She went many times to Germany from Zurich to try to save children or to send them on a transport to London. And every time my father accompanied her to Til Basel, which was the last station before entering Germany, and he always said he never knew whether he's going to see his wife again. But Borisem, she managed, she survived, and she saved thousands of people in Germany, many children and grown-ups. And then the war broke out, and then the, her work in Hatzola was gone. But in the meantime, the, the Jewish refugees who crossed the border from Switzerland illegally, came in. There came thousands and thousands, were in various camps first. And she was involved almost everywhere and started to help to put up kosher kitchens and to help the Jews come spiritually. And she did a tremendous work during the war. And we were never alone. The next story my grandfather describes is the story of how my great-grandparents adopted their Jewish daughter, whose parents were killed by the Nazis. There was a place in the Swiss mountains, not far away from Montreux, where we live, in Les Ains, and she went many times up there. And there were clinics for tuberculosis, six people, and there was there a young girl which was put up there from Germany. 
And in the meantime, the parents were killed in Germany and she was left alone. And the director of the clinic wanted to adopt her. And when my mother came up there and she heard about it, she said, so I'll take her as my daughter. So this way, Utah Luxembourg came to us like our own sister. And she was raised by us. She went to school by us. And she got married. Today, she is Borsheim in good health. In Nebrak, she lost her husband in the meantime. But she has three wonderful children. And she has big knockers. And I speak to her every, every Friday. My late father was very much involved in Hatzola work and helping the Jews who were in Switzerland during the war. Although he was in the Swiss army, he was a soldier, but uh, he went out and did a lot, a lot, a lot everywhere. And we had, of course, many times, many people who stayed with us, the Shabbos, the Yonte, and he was a big askant as well. When the Jews were in camps in which were directed by the Swiss army. My father, who was in the army himself, he knew the laws of the army. So he, he found out that many of the army people who were in the camps, the, the people in charge of the food, they were gambling in the food. So he made the court cases, he won them, and he got many big appraisals from the judges who were running the, the court cases. It was really meaningful for me to have my grandfather on and share a little bit about his mother and his father. Knowing him growing up, he didn't share much of his personal life. He shared plenty when it came to educating us and teaching us. However, it was very special and emotional for me to have him on this podcast. As we move on to my grandmother, Mrs. Lisbeth Bela Goldschmidt, I would like to mention that she wanted me to let you all know that the movement of Sarshnir, that my great-grandmother, her mother-in-law, was very involved in that initiative and that movement. Now my parents arrive in Switzerland. It's just before the war. My great-grandparents have a little toddler that they leave behind in Vienna, and they go to Switzerland because my great-grandmother is suffering from an illness. Completely unaware that the war is about to break out and that they will not be reunited with their toddler for another five years. They were not recognized as uh, refugees. The doctors uh, looked at her and they said, but it's not right what the doctors saw in you. You have some other illness which is extremely dangerous to stay up in the mountains. So my father and my mother went back to Zurich. The situation was the following. It was extremely difficult for my parents that they were not recognized as refugees. Because Hungary was not at war yet. The official permit that the Swiss government gave, a residence permit, 
for three months. Which had to be renewed every three months. The situation became very hard. My mother got pregnant with me. This was in the beginning of 1940. They didn't want to send my parents back to Hungary because she was a young mother with a child. But my father, they wanted to kick him out. So he kept jumping around, hiding, separated from his wife, just trying to survive. Then I was born. My mother was not allowed to keep me with her. And they put me in a Goish children's home. And uh, my mother, can you imagine, in all these Tzores, my father hid hiding in the mountains. She was allowed to pay a visit to the home, the children's home, once a week on Sunday. And I was already about eight or nine months old. And my mother told me often she brought me a banana. And I think in wartime, a banana was extremely expensive. And she had, I don't know where from she got the money, but she said she had absolutely the impression that I recognized her. There was something going on in my expression, in my face. When my grandmother refers to her mother, she's talking about Fraudel, my great-grandmother that I'm named after as well. And now she's going to talk about her sister Judith, who is going to be on as well after my grandmother. My sister Judith was not allowed to accompany my father and my mother to Switzerland. And we were separated. We, we, sometimes we knew that Judith is alive, sometimes we didn't, and at the end it was a very hard situation for my mother I, and my father. My mother cried a lot because of Judith, because she didn't know what's going on. And in 1945, there was on a Shabbos Kodesh a knock on the door. A representative of the Red Cross, and he said, I have to tell you, your child is alive. I, I will never forget this moment. And then it took a certain time up to Judith was allowed to enter Switzerland with papers and, and a hard thing. First of all, she didn't know my parents. Secondly, there were no feelings for my parents because she lived during war, doing horror in Budapest with her grandmother and Tante Shari and Tante Rochi, the two aunts. And now she is alone coming to a new family. She only spoke Hungarian, and we spoke German, and uh, my father spoke sometimes Yiddish with me, and my parents between them sometimes Hungarian. And the integration was also very hard 
because my aunt suffered terribly from the loss of, of Judith. The binding of them was unbelievable. It was not a normal binding. It was a binding through experience of war. Then her father found a job so he can support the family and the first earnings he used to help marry his sister and his sister-in-law off, which in my grandmother's words was a very heroic thing for him to do because they all needed money terribly, but marrying them off was very important. Uh, then we came to Geneva. And they were living in a... One big room, and in that were living my father, my mother, and two Holocaust survivors, my aunt from my father's side and my aunt from my mother's side, and Judith and me. My father got up every day at four o'clock in the morning, winter, summer, doesn't matter, and he opened the Gemore. He learned up to six o'clock, and then he went uh, to Daven. And even if he was not well, it did not exist as long as he could do it that he should not go to Daven in a tzibur. I asked my grandmother to talk about her mother a little bit more, and she mentioned how giving and hospitable they used to be. And they hosted graciously and generously Mishalachim coming in from different cities and countries from all over Europe, which was very, very unusual for that time to have an open house. So they fed them, they hosted them with so much joy and graciousness. Now I asked my grandmother to talk about her mother-in-law, Fratcha, Francisca, because my grandfather doesn't have his own memories, unfortunately. So here's a little bit about her. Grandmaman uh, was a brilliant woman. I would say she had one make, that she was born as a lady. My grandmother said that if she was a man, she would definitely be one of the greater rabbis of that generation. She gave Shirim. There was always a safer in front of her and always a paper. And she was reading and taking notes. Another interesting fact is that my great-grandmother married in her 30s. When she married the grandfather, Jakob Robert Goldschmidt, he was about uh, four years younger. How? He was making a living at the time, but then the depression happened and he wasn't able to regain his strengths and support the family. This is where my great-grandmother steps in and opens up a restaurant. She had to feed five children, plus Yuta, the daughter who they adopted that we discussed earlier. A beautiful story worth mentioning how my great-grandmother used to drop her daughter, my grandmother, off for shiurim that were given by her future mother-in-law. And some of the questions or some of the texts that no one else was able to translate and the other girls and students were 14, 15. My grandmother was only 10. She was able to translate it. Again, focus on Jewish education and pride, something that my grandmother and great aunt were raised with strongly. My mother, in, not yet my mother-in-law, wrote a letter 
about me to Omama and O Papa Schwartz. And it is such a pity that we don't have this letter. And it was, a, a, of course, a letter with praise and tralala. The next encounter with my mother, my mother-in-law, as I explained to you, at the first and second Knesio Gedoilo, she was leading, she was leading the ladies' part. Now here's a story that I specifically asked my grandmother to go into because that's the story that I prepared to share at my bat mitzvah. You must understand before the war where anti-Semitism was already terrifying in Germany and that the fathers were sent not exactly in a, a concentration camp but in a working camp the Germans took the children and put them in a Jewish orphanage home. My uh, mother-in-law, Franzi, was asked as she had a Swiss passport. Do you know what it meant at that time to have a Swiss passport? This was salvation. You, you, were, you were somebody. Even if you were only a, a, a lousy yid, but you were somebody because you had a Swiss passport. And she was sent to Germany in order to save the children who are there. She arrives there and the Jewish director of this old age home says, you can't help, you know there is a law that when children are sent out of the country and if they are, they need the signature of the father allowing the children to go, and this were the time of the famous Kindertransport, yes, the transport of children. So my mother-in-law told him, I am going. I will discuss with the highest Nazi. And he said, please don't do it because you are not sure that you come alive out of the Gestapo. She went in to the Gestapo, to the highest, uh, when she came to the door, the German, the German officer asked, whom do you want to speak? And she said the name of the highest in rank. And he was so taken apart, he brought her to the office of this highest Gestapo. And she began, she said who she is, and she began to plead that he should allow that these children should be integrated in the kinder transport to England or to Holland without the parents' signature. So he said, but you know the law. We need the signature of the fathers. So she had the guts 
she looks in his eyes and she says, you know exactly where the fathers are. And now I ask from you to sign as a representative of the fathers and to allow that these children can be transported. And he was so taken aback, he flabbergasted that he signed it on the spot. I, the, you, you know, it's very difficult to, to give the feeling one side my mother-in-law was one millimeter before death with the chutzpah that she had. And on the other hand, that even a Nazi recognized her power. When she was standing in front of this Nazi, she knew or she will succeed or she will be killed on the spot. Later, she shared how that was one of the most difficult nights of her life, deciding who will survive. And it's very sad that this situation of being obliged to make a selection from one Jewish child to another or from one grown-up Yehudi to another, I think this is something like when Avroham was bringing Yitzchok to the Akedo. Wow, thank you so much for sharing, Omama and Opapa. Now moving on to my great aunt, Judith Schwartz, and I call her Juju. For all of you who know that I grew up in Moscow, Russia, I did not grow up living with grandparents or any other family members surrounding us. However, we did have my great aunt, Judith, who actually moved to Russia to teach at Turo College. Eventually, she is recruited to my parents' school to head the elite English division. And many of her students actually became from and moved to the United States and Israel and have later said that being in her class has taught them so much more than just English. They have been trained to think and explore and be exposed to Western values and Western thought for anyone growing up in Russia to children of communist survivors. And I say that because they were not encouraged to think and they were not encouraged to be free people. So Judith has been more than just a teacher to so many people and she has influenced and impacted so many lives. I want to go to the heart of the matter. I was age-wise a young child when the Holocaust was over in 45. I was born in 37. I was eight years old, and I went through the worst part of the Holocaust from the occupation of Hitler of Hungary, but before already... I was uh, a victim of the Holocaust, starting, first of all, with the uh, separation from my parents as a young child. My mother, we, we lived in uh, Vienna before the Anschluss, before the annexation. 
meaning before the entrance of uh, Hitler's mm. army into Vienna, into Austria. We, lived, we, ha we had been living in Vienna for several years, and uh, my mother was very affected by the Anschluss, and she became sick. And I was a two-year-old child, and uh, the, the doctor happened to make a false diagnosis. He said she has to go to Switzerland because she has some kind of tuberculosis, and Switzerland's mountains, specifically Davos, is a... Um, is a small, is a village in the midst of the mountains, is very good for tuberculosis. Actually, she had something uh, totally different. And um, I was a two-year-old child, and she, uh, my father accompanied her officially into Switzerland, and I remained with my two unmarried aunts, meaning uh, the sisters of my mother and my grandmother. So the parents go off to Switzerland? They arrived in Switzerland, and 10 days later, uh, the war started, and, and the borders were, were uh, cut off. Here we were without Panosa, my um, older aunt was a seamstress, very able, and she uh, tried to make some panosa with this. And my father from uh, Switzerland was able uh, to send money somehow in a strange way to, uh, to Hungary. And here I was, actually not with my parents, and therefore I considered my two aunts as my mother's, I knew I had parents, but they were like my mother. Actually, it turned out that in my life I had three mothers. Judith goes on to talk about her religious upbringing by her grandmother and aunts and how spiritual they were and how they believed in Hashem. And every night I was praying for my, for my parents that uh, God should keep them well. I knew that the situation was not normal, but uh, somehow as a child, I was taken care of very well until, uh, until Hungary was occupied by, the Nazi, by, by Hitler. And then, of course, the situation became catastrophical because we couldn't stay at the address where we lived. There, there were decrees, we had to leave our apartment, and we had to join what was called Star of David Houses. That happened to be, as I learned much later, part of the so-called ghetto. We had a small room in a rather big apartment, because these apartments in the old days were quite large, actually, with several rooms. And here we lived with other Jews. And this was, of course, the beginning of, of terror. 
because uh, the Nazis one one evening came, penetrated in the house, and killed a few men in the huge entrance, and I was aware of it. And people were scared. I saw people uh, around me all uh, all uh, terrorized, actually. And this was not yet the worst. The Hungarian Nazis uh, came into our apartment. One was not even in uniform, a young man. I remember very good looking. And... He went into the into the bathroom where there was a big a bathtub, a huge old bathtub, and he was sitting there with a young girl that lived with her parents in in the apartment where we lived. A young girl, I would say, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, blonde. She seemed very beautiful to me, and he tried to uh, convince her uh, to be able to do something to her. And I was standing there. He he didn't care that I was in the bathroom. And I I was terrorized. I knew that something sexual was going on, but I didn't know what exactly. And then I I went back into the apartment and saw the the parents, and I thought to myself, my God, they are not even aware that their child is a few steps away in the bathroom being pressurized by this by this guy. I came out from all this, of course, having had a very disturbed childhood, and not as a child anymore. I knew things that I knew other children had never heard about. One day, one of my two aunts was deported. Uh, the Hungarian Nazis called Niloshok, Nilosh, green, yellow, green uniform, came into the house at night and uh, in a loud voice, cried out the age range of the people who had to go down in the courtyard. The courtyard was always European courtyard. Here she was, and my older aunt told me that my my aunt Rochi had to leave. And I was, there are no words for that, because I knew that we all played with our life, and she played even more with her life. And uh, Shari, this is my my older aunt, uh, Lali, uh, Sarah, told me, don't worry, she will come back. And she gave her a rucksack, and uh, Rohi kissed me. It was in the middle of the night, and then she had to leave. And of course, when she she survived the Holocaust, she came back, and she was part of this huge march from Budapest to Vienna of tens of thousands of Jews or ten thousands, 
uh, organized by Eichmann, and she told us horrifying stories. And what saved her life was actually the approaching army of Russia that was near Vienna, and they couldn't go, uh, and the march couldn't go uh, up to the up to their um, their end station. And somehow, not far from Vienna, they were parked in a factory, and there they were waiting. They understood that they had to wait for something, and they were given almost no food, and there was, of course, no hygiene, and uh, there were couples, I won't under. Uh, explain what that means. And she said that on the one hand, on the one side of this huge plant, there were women, and on the other side, men. There was no separation, and she was small and very skinny. And she said then after the war to us, that the more the the men were tall and heavy, the quicker they died. They were lying on straw on the ground, and next to her was a, a younger woman in her 30s, very good-looking, with her 16-year-old daughter, and she was converted, like many Hungarian Jews who had converted uh, since the end of the 19th century. Of course, uh, the conversion wasn't taken into consideration. And here was this woman lying next to her and having, having not the slightest idea why she was there. I, I wrote a poem after that not long ago about this, that while my, my while my aunt was lying, put her head on the on the sidur of her father that she had taken with her, and this woman was lying near her and had no idea why she was suffering. So back at the Jewish star house where they were living... Uh, we were forced to go down one day, my aunt and myself, an awful lot of people of the house. We, we had to go down in the street, and here we were standing, and I was next to my my aunt, and I had no idea where we, would, where we would be driven to. There was an old Goish woman approaching us. In my eyes, she was very old. And she tended to us a small uh, paper bag of fruits in front of the Nazi. And I said to myself, this woman is extraordinary. Here she is. She's a, she's a goy. And she takes advantage of her old age. 
And to me, she gave the impression that she was provoking the Nazi, telling him in her silent way, uh, will you also will you also uh, reduce me uh, to uh, to be a victim like these other people and she tended us some fruits i would never forget that i don't know her name i would never know it but i know that there were non-jews that had an unbelievable courage in these situations also not many, but they were. And I wrote a poem about her also. My grandmother was quite sick, couldn't move very well. She must have stayed at home. She was only in her 70s, but not well. And here we were, hundreds, while we were walking towards the Danube, which is, of course, the major river, uh, more and more Jews came out from those from those uh, um, houses and uh, joined the march, and we were uh, crossing the Danube. And when I was in the middle of the bridge, I said to myself, "Well." They might throw us into the water now. What is going to happen? And they didn't do that. Much later, they did things that were terrifying on the beach of the river. Not with us. Can you share the story of when uh, the Nazis came in to to summon, and I think it was Tante Shari? This happened much later. It was after the huge march um, crossing the Danube. And uh, we were living officially in a protected house. The Swedish ambassador, the Swiss ambassador, in other words, two neutral countries intervened to have a few houses under their protection. And uh, we were able to live there. Therefore, we are alive, actually. The agreement between those uh, neutral countries and uh, the occupying power was that uh, Nazis couldn't penetrate, didn't, didn't have the right to get into these houses. But, of course, they didn't. Uh, keep the agreement, and they came up. And from time to time, they they shouted in the courtyard and uh, later came up to... They shouted out the range of age, which has to go down, which meant actually that these people were deported against the agreement. My aunt Shari was also small, and uh, thin, and uh, it was her our age range that had been called out. She was a kind of a businesswoman type, extremely courageous. She knew 
left me behind with my old grandmother, I would end up, I don't know where. She had the courage to hide. And once she hid under this huge, but huge table in the entrance, she asked me to put huge uh, chairs in front of, of, of the table. And I was standing there, and the, the, the Nilosh came up, and, uh, and uh, for the last inspection, if all those who were supposed to, uh, to be driven away were downstairs in the courtyard, and I, saw, I, I knew that she was under the table, and I knew that if he had discovered her, he would have killed her on the spot. And I was standing there. So this was one scene, and then there was a similar one where she was at another time where there was a roundup. And there, there was this huge kitchen, and behind the door, there was a small space for all kinds of um, a cleaning material. And she, um, she hid there in that small few centimeters but, and opening the door, and I was standing there. So twice, twice in that in 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 two situations, I knew that it was the the heavens opened, and he didn't he didn't think so far that somebody had the courage. To, to hide in, in, in that impossible in, in space. I saw things happening in front of me that were at the end of Yom Kippur and Nina. When we say Kifor no Yom, that the Rabbi Shurarim should help us because, the, because it goes towards the end. My two arms were protected for different reasons. One was very, very from, and survived without eating because they got this horrible soup at the at at in the evening. That was a pseudo soup. She she survived because because she had an unbelievable faith in the rabbinical order. And the other one was also religious, but less less the tzaddikist type, active uh, businesswoman, and she survived because. She took advantage of of situations. She saw she saw how she could take advantage 
of her tiny body in that huge apartment. Given the experiences that you have survived and seen with your own eyes at a very young age that no one should have ever been exposed to, what would be one message that you would like to share with a generation that, thank God, has not experienced something as devastating as the Holocaust? Yes, yes. I asked myself this question several times. I asked myself how I felt in those. There were other situations that were extremely dangerous. What remained in me was the feeling of powerlessness. It was unbelievable that what evil was able to do, and at the same time, I knew, because I was, I was raised very religiously, I knew that evil couldn't win. But in the, in the meantime, our powerlessness was explosive. And what remained in me are these two things, that it is impossible for evil to win, however long it takes, and however strong they are. And on the other hand, Jews shouldn't be as powerless anymore. We were power. I know why we were powerless. It had a very clear historical uh, reasons, and it started very early. But I don't want the Jewish people to fall into such powerless anymore. This is terrifying. Now, in certain circumstances, I know that this powerlessness saved our life. But in general, I would say that there is a reward in, in the depths of my soul that this shouldn't happen again, that we should remain in front of such evil uh, as exposed. And uh, on the other hand, I always knew that the Rabbi Shalom is with us. Always. There was absolutely... There was... It was... It was... It was more than knowledge. It was just inside my DNA. Have you ever felt like you were able to heal? Or are those wounds that can never be healed? I don't think one can heal from that. I mean, I'm very happy that we survived and that we that I could uh, that I could do many things in my life that I would have never imagined doing, but healing this can't heal. Because in every situation that is even for another human being that didn't go through that, uh, far distant from horror. In every situation, this comes back, and automatically it is compared 
there is an automatic comp- uh, comparison that that goes beyond me that i that i then analyze later yes i compared it uh, between what went on and and what is in front of me let's say like let's say the last events in america automatically although <laughs> it seems at first sight, so far away, automatically it came back. I'd like to wrap up this episode by sharing a little bit more about the accomplishments and the full life that Judith lived after surviving the war. Judith goes on to get an education, and then later she marries and moves to London. She gets pregnant and leaves her husband. She believed it wasn't the right environment to raise her child in. After she left her husband, she went to Paris and studied and taught French at the Sorbonne School, after which she left for the States, where she taught at the City University of New York. So Judith keeps learning new languages and teaching languages in different countries as she searches for the right community and space to raise her daughter in a Jewish Yiddish environment, which was a big priority in her life. Now, Judith lives in Beit Ve'er in Israel, and they are officially under quarantine. So we had to record it on a landline. So apologies for the recording quality. I'd also like to mention that I probably spent six or seven hours editing down basically two and a half hours of content. So this is really digestible for you. I also want to thank my grandmother, grandfather, and great aunt and cousin Ava, Judith's daughter, for helping make this happen. It's Thursday today and Sarah Dukes's husband passed away while I was sitting and editing this, which is so surreal. I am in such shock. I just want to say Baruch Dayan Haemet my heart goes out for Sarah Dukes and her children. This is just so heartbreaking. And I'd like to also mention that you can use Schmoozy now to listen to your episodes of The Francisco Show. And I would love to encourage you to use that app to listen to this podcast because besides her being able to subscribe there, each episode is linked to a discussion forum where I would love for you to be able to communicate with me as well as each other. And we could really talk about things that are said, things that are discussed, maybe ask questions or invite new conversation and new topics to the podcast. And I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear your feedback. I would love to have you talk to each other about the topics and about the conversations we have here. So thank you so much for listening. Make sure to download the Schmoozy app, subscribe to the Francisco Show podcast there and start the conversation. Also share this podcast with anyone else you think would enjoy this content. See you next time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.